Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, guys? Xavier Katani here with our latest episode with Mr. Oliver Berkman. His book is called The Antidote, Happiness for Those Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Yeah, this is much different than our usual. I really just had this desire to cover the other side of the coin with this one. In this episode, we dig into the self-help culture. We explore some of the guru worship that happens within that industry. We also dove into some of the absurdly hilarious things people do on social media. So I think you guys will find this episode hugely comical. It was massively cathartic for me to do. I feel like our world has become so technologically driven that we've lost touch of some of the things that connect us as real human beings. Oliver has a tremendous amount of experience interviewing some very, very big names such as Jerry Seinfeld and 50 Cent, among among others, please pick up a copy of his book, The Antidote. You can find us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, all at The Human XP. We survive on your support. So if you value what we're doing here, get to thehumanxp.com slash donate, buy us a cup of coffee or dinner for all the work that we pour into this show. So much respect to anyone who does that for us as usual. And without much, much further ado, this is Mr. Oliver Berkman, The Antidote. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is unlocking the keys to happiness. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest today is Mr. Oliver Berkman. His book is called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Oliver, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oliver, I find your book title hilarious in the best way possible. Are you just are you just the most cynical person on the planet to write this book or, you know, what happened here? <laughs> I hope not. I mean, I guess that's for others to judge, but my um, I'm coming at this from uh, the perspective that there's kind of something very very wrong with the the culture of positive thinking, the idea that you can sort of just forcibly think your way to to happiness and success and that setting ambitious goals and relentlessly driving after them is always the right way forward, etc. But I'm also rejecting something that I associate much more with my native Britain, which is a kind of resignation that says, you know, you can't have those things. There's no route to, to, to happiness, no route to success. I want to say that it's a different one uh, and that, and that um, if you're the kind of person who's prone to a certain amount of pessimism or let's say skepticism rather than cynicism, that might actually be really useful and great. And you don't need to transform yourself into a uh, person who is uh, grinning in a, in a slightly scary, manic fashion all day long. But it's not cynicism. I mean, I, I think I've tried in a lot of the writing I've done on this psychology and things like that in general to steer that course, you know, to be totally open about mocking all the stuff that I think is useless, but not to pretend that there isn't some really great value there as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was so excited just to get into your book that I skipped over. This is, this is your second book that you've written. Uh, yeah, the first is a collection of columns, so that was kind of easy to write because I'd already written them. You work for The Guardian. You write for The Guardian on a regular basis. That's right. I have a weekly column on, on these related areas, you know, psychology, productivity, science of happiness, this kind of thing. If I have this right, just looking at my notes, you did your master's uh, in social and political sciences over at Cambridge. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So getting back to the book, I mean, just establishing your, your credentials there. I, I understand the need for a book like this. I mean, I understand that the current trend in our society culture is moving towards this sort of be happy all the time. Happiness is this sort of goal. Mindfulness. There, there's just this, this whole 
it's almost trendy. You know, even for myself, I, there's, there's a lot of, I guess I can be immensely cynical at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in the book, you talk about uh, just trying too hard to be happy. What, what, I mean, what does that mean? Well, I guess it's useful to give a sort of a working definition of positive thinking here, maybe, because, you know, on the one hand, not every single like happiness guru gets condemned by me as a positive thinker. On the other hand, a lot of people who think that they would never fall for the pseudoscience or whatever, they may also, as I was, I think, be guilty of a certain kind of positive thinking. What I mean is not optimism. I don't mean there's something wrong if you get out of bed in the morning feeling great. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Keep doing it. But this idea that we can successfully just use our conscious will to control Mm -hmm. our emotions, our thoughts, and outcomes in the external world, that you can sort of, in a very simple way, achieve dominance and mastery over your human psychology and get rid of all the stuff that you don't want and just create all the outcomes that you do want. And what I try to do, at the beginning of the book, I do spend some time just like mocking terrible positive thinking i confess it but i then try to be more constructive in the rest of the book and explore this idea that i call the negative path to happiness which is a whole family of different approaches including some stuff from buddhism and meditation including stoicism which is all very popular these days again that was that was the next thing that i was going to get into i mean are you do you consider yourself a stoic or you do you practice that or what unites all these approaches, they're all very different, but what unites them all is this idea that we could usefully learn to get more friendly towards and tolerant of the negative emotions in us, you know, the, th- the thinking in us that is, 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 is not always exactly as we'd want it. The idea that if you, you know, meet with opposition to your goals and end up in a different place than you'd planned, that might not be a bad thing. So just this general attitude that says, let's just be more open to everything that arises instead of this actually really stressful and not very happy way of being, which is constantly trying to eliminate the negative. It's a very exhausting way to feel that you have to keep replenishing your reserves of relentless good cheer and much more, I think, open and actually practical for for, for getting things done to have a a more resilient, capacious attitude. So stoicism, I mean, I I don't think I can claim to call myself a stoic all the way through because there is a lot to that um, uh, philosophy that I don't practice, that I, some bits that I kind of disagree with, but the bit that I took from it that was so powerful and really sums up, I guess, some of what I'm trying to say is this idea of negative visualization or the, the premeditation of evils to give it its cool, right, uh, yeah, its cool yeah. title which is this idea that a lot of the time um instead of trying to persuade yourself that everything's just going to go fantastically or, or persuade other people you know um there's real merit in uh in soberly thinking through actually how badly things could go what the worst case scenario could be in any given circumstance and and really going forward into the risky future, absolutely open to the idea that it might all go disastrously wrong, but with a real sense of actually, you know, the, 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 the ground floor to that, how far things really could go wrong. Because what you find, obviously, in almost all cases, is that this, we sort of go through life panicking and fearing things that have an almost zero, and in some cases, zero chance of actually happening. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think, I think the, the few fascinating things that I find about, you know, what you're doing in this book and your, and your work is that, you know, you're looking at, you, you spend a lot of time looking at the science of, of quote happiness and you're looking at the psych psychology of it and, and productivity and, but also you, you spend some time to kind of question, uh, the, the tenets of, of the people in the self-help industry yeah. and, and, and kind of the, the way that people tend to worship these, these people that are in that industry. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, it divides into two. There are kind of charlatans. There are people who I want to criticize fairly openly and, and say that, um, that on some level, I'm not accusing them of, uh, you know, criminal offenses, but on some level, it is a, it is a, it is a con. Um, there is a kind of strange built-in dynamic to a lot of self-help such that um, if it really did its job, 
they would put themselves out of business. Um, exactly. uh, which is that's actually true of quite a few different industries. But the special thing about self-help then is that when it doesn't work, especially with positive thinking, it man- the ideology tells you that you're not thinking positively enough. That your problem is you're not doing it enough. So you um, go back and get more uh, right. replenishment from the same people, the same seminars, the same books. And I yeah. think the parallel I make somewhere is, you, you know, if you bought a TV from a specific manufacturer and it broke and you did it again and it broke again, like you'd stop buying TVs from that manufacturer. Whereas there's a tendency within the way the logic of positive thinking to keep of going back to the same methods and the same gurus convinced that it's you and that if you can only think a bit more positively, you know, all this, uh, this promise will be, uh, will be granted to you. And then I think there's a lot more uh, in the world of, of positive thinking and a bit more broadly positive psychology that is not dishonest or, or um, ill meant. It's just that it's just that it doesn't allow enough uh, of of the the side of the coin, the emotional coin that is negativity and feeling sad and feeling inadequate and feeling insecure. And actually, you know, learning to get friendly with those feelings is a is a kind of a superpower. I think definitely i i mean i i relate to this a lot and i and i kind of want to i want to bounce back to you know your the way that you view these people that and and you know you you called it a con and it is you know i i agree with you i it is there is a sense of if they were doing their jobs if they were actually coming through you you would no longer need them right yeah, so, right. so I mean, so um, you nailed it by saying that, and I need you to dig deeper into this. I mean, why this phenomenon? Why do we? F- why, as human beings, why do we feel like we need to give our power, surrender our power into a person who may or may not be able to hand us something that we can't kind of garner ourselves? It's a really good uh, way of way of putting it. I think that we all of us to some degree feel inadequate or not up to the task or we secretly think we're the only person who's winging it and we don't realize that as I often try to say in my writing you know that basically everybody is winging it all the time Uh, and and in that situation you can go in one of several different ways And, and one of those ways is to sort of yeah as you say hand over all your power to someone who seems very persuasively to, to not have any of those issues so that you, you know, so that you don't need to feel those negative feelings anymore. And it's, you know, and not to exaggerate, but it's a, it's a minor version of why people join certain kinds of cult and uh, <laughs> certain kinds of terrifyingly extreme political organization. It's like it makes things simple and somebody else is taking responsibility for everything you do. And that is one uh, way of dealing with uh, emotions that you that you don't want to confront. I think basically everything that goes wrong in life is because we're thinking and feeling things that we don't want to acknowledge that we're thinking and feeling. And if you can just gently, to a certain degree, learn to acknowledge them instead, I think you become you're just in twice as powerful and in a much in, in a much better situation. So I do think that. I mean, I went to one of these particularly ridiculous uh, motivational uh, <laughs> seminars where one of the people, I, this is not something I mentioned so much in the book, this particular speaker, because I was focusing on others, but like, you know, there's somebody there who's who goes around these things selling software that enables you to completely beat the stock market, to get all these advantages that apparently top secret, uh, you know, the, the, the star investors have and that will will enable you to get these kind of like insane returns automatically from his software that costs several thousand dollars to, to right. subscribe to. And, you know, it's obvious. It's an old point. Many people have made it. But, like, he would not be there selling it for two or $3,000 if it did what it said. You know, if he could, if he could sit back and become a multi-millionaire uh, uh, using that method, he would not feel the need to be on the road uh, 300 days a year trying to sell software to other people. Precisely. Yeah. You're ringing. There's so many bells that are ringing for me right now, just through all of this, because it, when I look at the the self-help industry, there is a sense of it, it's it's very amorphous. You know, it's very transitory and it's very just far away. And then when you when you when you grasp it, when you start to grasp it, just as you said, you need to you you continually have to go back for more, yeah. you know, whether yeah. it's whether it's like a Facebook feed that the person runs and oh, OK well you know i just read this amazing article 
it you apply it for a couple days and then you you have to go back and read another article or whatever it may be right and i mean it just it's such an interesting phenomenon that was it was just snake oil you know you were just called a snake oil salesman yeah and i say i think there's really important little distinction that's worth making as well though which is that you know to some extent all of us who are in the writing and speaking and podcasting business like we'd like people to keep coming back for our stuff that's that's just the way of the world um i think there is something there is also something very specific about kind of mood boosting right there's this idea that, that of getting motivated uh is is a kind of really complicated and thorny one when you get into it because we tend to think that if we want to achieve amazing things what we really need to do is kind of psych ourselves up and and mm-hmm. and get motivated and and really then just like you know go out and kick ass and as i always try to <laughs> argue and i say at one point in the book i think you know if you want to do something risky scary amazing then like that's a challenge because you need to take the actions associated with it. But if you tell yourself you've got to feel like doing it first, that's actually, you know, that's not helping. That's adding a new uh, hurdle because we, most of us, have the ability to control our physical movements. We can sit down, open the laptop, start typing, email the person, whatever it may be. But the desire to make yourself feel like everything's fantastic is actually much harder because our brains and our emotional lives are such complicated things and so for me both in the a message in the book but also something that helped me write the book and has helped me a lot ever since is the just this insight that you know you don't need to feel like doing something in order to do it you can be okay with your grumpy uh, grouchy in a dialogue and the fact that you don't really want to be doing something and you don't need to try and squelch that and go to war with it you can just feel it and by the way at the same time take some actions that, that that move you towards your your objectives so in a way i think you can see the whole motivational culture as this thing like yeah it's this kind of quest for a short-lived little shot in the arm and yeah a couple of days later you need another one maybe just don't get hooked to that at all and let the the motivated feeling and the unmotivated feeling come and go like the weather and and meanwhile take some actions i mean it's easier said than done but i think it's much more effective than uh, than the alternative. I have this sort of philosophy, I guess, and and it, what I call it is the message versus the messenger theory. So the way that I look at it is, let's let's just Steve Jobs. He he his message was profound; it changed the world. But as him as a, a messenger, I mean, I didn't know the guy, but the stories about him and surrounding him is that he was kind of a dick. <laughs> yes. And what I've noticed is that. There are people who t- like to talk a lot, and uh, they they like to you know really hear themselves speak. and And when they're when they're when they're giving these speeches, it's it's very adrenaline fueled. It's very you know it's almost like a church gathering yeah. where you know they're doing these special spells. And except it's a motivational course. And it, it pumps you up and it gets you, you know, driven and you're, all these neurochemicals are firing off in your brain. But, you know, eventually it, it just fades. Getting back into your book here, you talk about insecurity being this sort of power source. It, 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 insecurity can be a, a, a way to look at things differently. Let's get into that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was really inspired and uh, and affected in my life by reading a very thin book by uh, Alan Watts, the oh, great yeah. 60s, 70s sort of counterculture philosopher guy um, called The Wisdom of Insecurity, in which mm-hmm. he, uh, it's very sort of abstract and philosophical, but but really packs a punch. And it's, it's, it's this basic idea that, you know, we all feel totally insecure these days. It's kind of a joke because he's writing in 1951, but it totally applies uh, today uh, even more so. On every level, you know, we people feel economically insecure. The world feels sort of geopolitically insecure. The climate, um, no matter the level you choose, um, we spend a lot of our lives feeling insecure. And he makes the argument that a big part of the cause of that, and maybe the whole cause of it, ironically, is our attempts to feel secure and that it's only by constantly struggling for this feeling of safety um, that we sort of expose ourselves to this constant awareness of how we're not completely safe. There's a quote that goes around on the internet attributed, I think, to Helen Keller about how security is 
mainly an illusion. You know, if you really want to get kind of existential and depressing about it, like anything could happen for real tomorrow. Very, very bad things could. And, um, you know, depending on your religious beliefs, probably they're definitely going to happen eventually. If you just give your life uh, long enough, it's going to stop. Um, sure. So there's kind of an argument for doing what you possibly can to open to that kind of flux and to say that building these walls to try to feel safe inside is A, not very successful usually, and B, just creates a greater sense of being exposed to the slings and arrows of, of the world. Um, I don't mean you shouldn't, you know, have an emergency fund in the, uh, of savings. You should take sort of precautions, sure, but this idea in life that feeling safe is is what you're shooting for, I think, um, leads a lot of people astray and actually leads them to feel more and more unsafe because same dynamic as with other aspects of sort of positivity or whatever is you're, you're constantly made aware of all the ways in which you're still not yet uh, completely completely safe, if that makes sense. So that's why I think sort of learning to embrace insecurity a bit is, uh, is, is so powerful because you're going to feel it anyway and you might as well not feel it in the really extreme way that comes from spending your life trying to feel safe does that make any sense yeah no of course <laughs> yeah it it does really to me it does and i really honestly don't know how my listeners are going to react to this conversation <laughs> but i was i was speaking to a friend of mine last night and i mentioned that that you were going to be on the show and they just they just they were crying laughing just because you know, they, I, I can be extremely cynical at times, even though, you know, I'm doing this show that is meant to really help people. And we, we explore the depths of being human, mm -hmm. which is why another, another reason I just wanted to look at the other side of the coin. For me, it just, it comes down to really exploring all angles. Why not, why not bring you on the show and kind of deconstruct in a way where, you know, you're not, you're not selling some seminar that you're not offering some coaching course that, you know, that you're going to be running soon. Yeah, no, yes, I, I, I got to get on that. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's two different things again, right? It's the, it's, I keep saying that, but you know, it's like, it's, there are people you should ignore because it's pseudoscience and it doesn't work. But then there's also a kind of just like a, a widened lens, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not that everything you previously thought was completely wrong. It's that, it's that there's this other side, um, to the yin and yang. And in fact, by the end of writing this book, I started off talking about happiness and the subtitle has the word happiness in it. You know, by the end, I began to wonder, and I write about this, you know, whether it really makes any sense to think about happiness as the goal that we're aiming for here, as opposed to uh, meaning and meaningfulness. And I think that when you reframe it as meaningfulness, you can begin to see that uh, this is uh, a meaningful life is surely one that, that has the highs and the lows um, that, that is sort of present for the whole crazy catastrophe of being a human life, uh, human life on the planet, rather than this very sort of careful and closed thing where like, I'm going to get it exactly right. And I'm going to be a success every step of the way. It's like, no, it's messy. And it's so much better uh, for being uh messy there's a there's a um uh self-help writer actually uh, susan jeffers she died a couple of years ago who wrote a book called feel the fear and do it anyway which um mm -hmm. sounds a bit like the kind of title i might make jokes about but it's kind of a good piece of wisdom i think feel the fear and do it anyway rather than eliminate your fear kill your fear and be fearless um and she wrote another book uh, about uncertainty, and she made this point in it that, you know, if somebody could hand you a list of everything that was going to happen to you in the rest of your life from tomorrow to the end of your life, like, you, you, most people, I think, when they really thought about it, wouldn't want to receive that list. And the real kicker is you wouldn't even want to receive it if every single item on it was good. Because the moment you knew for certain what was going to be happening every day of your life to the end of your life, it would be a little bit like you know, death, basically, it will be like your life was over, the juice was gone. And so I feel like being really open to what might happen, and to the fact that that's going to be a roller coaster, and that there's going to be like, 
real lows as well as real highs. It just feels much more, much more like a life on your deathbed you would look back on with, with real uh, sort of pride and joy. I mean, I think essentially we're all we're all just at the base of everything. We are all just human beings, and we're going to we're going to have bad days. We're gonna we're gonna feel we're gonna feel like crap. You know, it, it's going to be hard. It, it and not everything is going to be rosy, peachy, and beautiful. And you know, I I I do meditate. I practice meditation. I, I meditate every day, and it does help sometimes. But you know, I I tend to cycle through you know varying emotional states, and at, at least I'm aware of them. You yeah. know, I'm aware of I'm I'm aware that I I get super depressed occasionally, and. I'm aware of my highs and my lows, right. you know, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to fight either of them. I, I'm okay with them. And it just feels like, you know, the, the culture that we've, we are seeing grow more and more kind of trendy and popular is do yoga, meditate, have mindfulness, attend my seminar, and I will show you how to take control of your life you will have control of your life again. Right. And I think that, you know, yeah. And I think that control thing, I mean, this is a lesson I've had to learn and I'm still learning in in life. I don't want to pretend I'm some perfect paragon, but like I am not at all sure that control and dominance is, is a helpful way of thinking at all. I'm increasingly drawn to things like the, um, you know, Joseph Campbell, the great scholar of, uh, of mythology who said that, um, I'll, I'll uh, garble the quote, but it's something like, you know, you have to uh, put aside uh, or let go of the life you had planned in order to live the life that is waiting for you. You know, there's something about control that keeps us very small, because obviously, if you're going to plan and control and execute uh, a perfect life from where you're standing now, that is limited to your perspective now. You know, you can't know... Uh, what the possibilities are uh, beyond beyond your current perspective, and that sort of idea of getting out of your own way, or as someone else I know puts it, you know, think of yourself as the like the the super in an apartment building, not the owner of the apartment building. Like, think of yourself as the person whose job it is to like keep the thing running and be open and let things happen, and then just like see where it goes and be able to uh, respond in in the best ways to uh to to where it goes i think there's an awful lot in that something else that springs to mind tell me if i'm going on too much but there's a um, no no please go on there's a um a psychoanalyst a jungian psychoanalyst in the tradition of carl jung called james hollis who um uh i've really it's since writing the book that i've discovered his his stuff so he's not in there but him he says somewhere that um the question we should be asking about life choices, choices in, you know, work, romance, whatever, is not, is this choice going to make me happier or, or less happy? Because that is a very tricky thing for all the reasons we've been discussing. You know, we don't even know. But instead, to ask the question, will this choice, this path in life make me uh, larger or smaller? Will it enlarge me or diminish me? And I just find this incredibly powerful because if you say to yourself okay i'm going to go for growth i'm going to go for enlargement and i'm going to go for getting bigger rather than getting smaller um there are all sorts of choices that might just be really scary they might not sound like they're going to make you happier necessarily but they are going to be sort of like stepping into life in a way that is uh much more you know i don't know just feels like more like worth doing than uh, than this very sort of careful uh, pinched path of like I'm going to try really hard always to be feeling happy. So hmm. yeah, I mean there was a there was an article that you wrote called uh, Facebook and Twitter: The Art of Unfriending or Unfollowing People. Oh yeah, and you kind of break. It's just such an outstanding article. You kind of break down how unfriending someone on Facebook is like a sort of snub and do you even give a, a sort of example? Can you explain this to, to us? Because I, I am going to butcher it if I attempt to. Well, I mean, I think the main point I was trying to get at there is, and this was one that I think Ambrose Bierce had made like centuries ago, was that like we don't have a 
acceptable social mechanism in society for like being deintroduced from people. Um, and he was suggesting, you know, hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago, that um, that there should be a way of uh, there should be a way of like formally. Uh, deciding no longer to be an acquaintance with someone <laughs> because it's just <laughs> otherwise you just collect an infinite number of people and uh, they might not all be right for you and obviously that's a thousand times more of an issue in the world of uh, of social media because we can sort of develop these thousands of supposed supposed friends and right. I think just generally actually in the world not even just friendship we're kind of bad at endings we're bad at um we're bad at saying actually it's right for this thing to 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 come to an end now, and that could be anything from you know the big stuff like a relationship. Um, uh, and now I I read uh, according to the newspapers that uh, write about millennials. I, don't, I, I I'm no longer one. My I can't count ever to have been one myself, but is um, you know just just vanishing from relationships is apparently uh, uh, more and more ghosting. Popular. Yeah, right. You, but we don't have good rituals for ending things could be as big as a relationship could be as small as just like when is it okay to stop reading a book that you started reading and you decided actually you know what i'm going to abandon this and i think defriending gets in there somewhere but you know it's difficult stuff i I, i'm aware that there are some people on twitter uh who who have some system set up some app or something so that they they are told when people unfollow them. And I'm just like, why would you want to do that? It's like a daily reminder. I mean, I'm aware from keeping half an eye on my follower account that, you know, it, it climbs on average, but it definitely climbs and falls. You know, there's certainly people uh, deciding they're sick of me on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> I find this absolutely hilarious, man. I, I just, um, it, it seems like an exchange, like a currency. So even recently, I, I started to do this experiment where, uh, you know, on my Facebook account, I just stopped liking other people's stuff. And not that I, I didn't like it or that I did, I just didn't care enough to to click like anymore. I just didn't feel like doing it. And so I, I just, I simply wanted to measure what the effect would be on my my friend count and also whether people liked what I posted or not. And it was, it was, I mean, it was completely unsurprising. It was the suddenly I'm losing friends and no one is liking any of my posts. Right. So it's almost like, it's almost like this, it's a currency. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the content of what you're posting is. It's just simply oh, okay, you know, this person liked my thing, so I'm going to go out of my way and make sure that I, you know, I pay them back in this electronic, you know, way and just, and make sure that I like their stuff as well. Yeah, I think likes are a really fascinating phenomenon, right? Because, you know, firstly, there's this whole problem of how do you show support to somebody who's saying something sad or negative? Like, you don't want to like a post where somebody tells you that they lost a loved one. Because it's like not a good thing, but um, but you might want to sort of show support. And there's this constant debate: is Facebook going to introduce ways of uh, ways of doing this? So that first of all creates a kind of positivity bias in what people post, I think. Um, and then secondly, yeah, it's just sort of transactional. Uh, and then Facebook's algorithm responds in really weird ways. So like if a friend of mine has a baby and posts a pictures on Facebook, of course I'm going to like those photos because I want to say, you know, I'm really pleased for you. I'm thinking of you, and that's all great. But then Facebook then decides that all I want to see in my Facebook feed is uh, pictures of people's babies, which might not have been the case. So you know, there's, it's a, it's obviously it's a metric that's being used for commercial purposes. And in that sense, I mean, I'm not anti-social media at all. Uh, I'm pretty right. much addicted to Twitter, but um, but it, but there is a sort of an erosion of the meaning of of you know friendship. I think added on, you get this phenomenon of how facebook feeds are like the highlight reels of people's lives so if you judge yourself subconsciously by them you'll end up concluding that your life is much more um it's much worse because uh everyone you follow seems to only be you know announcing new jobs great vacations getting engaged and uh and you don't, they don't post about the days that they're just feeling kind of blah. So, um, so there's lots of strange <laughs> phenomena emotionally that go on with, uh, with social media. There's a form of kind of humble bragging, you know, it's like, 
oh, I just bought this brand new Maserati. I paid $200,000 for it. And you're just, you're disgusted. You're nauseated. You know, you're, you're, you don't even make six figures a year. And you're, and this person is posting, you know, pictures of, of their Maserati. And it, it does affect, you know, it does, being on social media, it does affect kind of just your psychology. I mean, if you're, and, and how can you not compare yourself to another person's life? How can you not compare? Just, it's, it's human nature right. to, to yeah. just automatically do that. You know, I find it amusing. And I think it was Terrence McKenna who, who just said that that you should be an anthropologist of your own culture, you know, and just yeah. that you can learn so much by doing that. Yeah. And and I find our culture truly, truly fascinating. And there's there's a part in your book called the Museum of Failure, and um, oh yeah, it just it you know the sub subheading is just the case for embracing your errors. How would we go about just embracing failing? Well, good question. I mean, the, the, the fun part of doing that chapter was that I got to go to this place in, uh, in Michigan, which is a, a giant, it's a commercial operation. It's a storehouse of like failed consumer products. And it exists so that product designers can go and, and research things they're planning and see how it compares to other products that, that didn't make it. So there's like tens and tens of thousands of just like ridiculous things, like microwavable scrap, pre-scrambled eggs in a tube that you're supposed to take so you can eat them uh, in the car on the way to work. And um, there's like all these kind of, there was, a, there was a brand of cola called Breakfast Cola that was specifically designed to try to get you to drink it for breakfast. All this kind of stuff. Anyway. You mean like failed inventions? Failed uh, consumer products. So supermarket products. Failed, failed products that, products that um, you, would have, uh, you would have seen on the shelves uh, at the supermarket, but then they were withdrawn after a few weeks or months because nobody was buying them. And the f- fascinating thing about this place is that it didn't start as a, as a collection of failures it just started as a collection as a research library of like they went out and bought every new thing that that came to the supermarket and uh it's just a fact that because the vast majority of products that are brought to launch in that space um fail it's just the law of how it works that naturally over time this um this place would become a, a collection of of failed products and what that sort of shows you is that failure is kind of the default mode um you know i believe it's certainly true that like most restaurants fail and um you can even if you want to get grand and existential about it you could see like evolution as a process of uh progressive failure because um you know the vast majority something like 99 percent of all species that have ever existed are extinct now like that's Mm -hmm. how it works we wouldn't be here if that uh mechanism didn't kick in so it's kind of a little bit insane when you when you think about that to try to avoid failure at all costs because there is clearly something very closely connected between failure and progress and it's pretty simple I think you know if you've got the courage to try stuff knowing that it might go wrong then you try bold stuff I think there's a very close connection that you see in all this right between failure and progress that you are only going to make uh, grand successes by being exposed to the risk of fairly serious failure. Otherwise, the alternative is this very safe, very cautious uh, middle ground where you don't risk too much, don't lose too much, don't achieve too much. Um, so, you know, I think in this is this is uh, an idea that's got a lot of followers now. I don't think I'm the only person saying, uh, you know, it, it's good to embrace failure. But mm-hmm. I think it's a really powerful way to think. It relates also to that stuff about fixed versus growth mindsets that I'm sure you uh, uh, have, have know about and have uh, right. encountered. Yeah. To comment on, you know, what you just said about failure. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I think some of my greatest ideas have, 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 have come through just massively failing and <laughs> the the idea of just 
trying, as you said, just trying, trying something that is immensely large and then and failing in a huge way. I think that, and, and we hear a lot about the success stories of, you know, various companies and entrepreneurs. And I, I think there's, there's, there's a sort of misperception about this sort of over, overnight success that, that, that is such a huge myth that I think we need to focus on eliminating because, you know, there's the, the, the actual curve is, you know, fail, 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 fail for, for <laughs> at least a year and a half. And then, you know, maybe you, you hit that success point. Right. Um, but I, I was going to jump into um, you. You kind of talk about there was, you know, there was a book. I think I think it was the early '90s. I mean, maybe it was a little bit after you know 2001 or so. But the, the book's The Secret and uh, oh, yes. Celestine Prophecy. It was as if you know, if you just simply kind of think your way, you you just kind of project positive energy out into the universe. It will just magically happen the universe will will align the stars will come together and it will just appear in your lap as if hard work is is not part of this at all and it, so i just want i just want to hear your representation of how you yeah. kind of viewed the secret well i mean my main response is don't get me started um i <laughs> <laughs> that is a, the secret is a is a book that i have not uh, held back from uh being being rude about. I, I don't feel too bad about that because I think that the uh, people involved with that now have so much money that uh, they can uh, they can take a few uh, they can afford they can it. take a few knocks. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, yeah, right. You're you're completely right. I, it, it is constantly unclear in these um, discussions of what's called the law of attraction exactly what is being said. If you're saying that sitting and visualizing and envisaging success is a substitute. For doing anything about it, then that seems to me just clearly, obviously stupid and wrong. And if people out there do it and it works for them, then I don't want to stop them. But but I just that has no uh, there's no contact point in my understanding of the world for for that. Sometimes what people will say is no, it's not that. It's about it's about cultivating a certain mindset that will help motivate the right kinds of actions. And in that case, you know, I'm a little bit more open to that. I think that can sometimes help. But the same goes for that as what I was saying about, you know, motivational, uh, the usual way we talk about motivation. I actually think that thinking that you've got to divert an enormous amount of your energy to cultivating the right mindset and to um, feeling like you're in a state of welcoming success and affluence and whatever it might be, this is a huge distraction from from action. And it means that on any day that you wake up and you're just not feeling it, you're probably not going to take any action. Whereas if your attitude towards your inner emotions is one more tolerant of the different weather patterns that come and go, then you might well wake up one day not feeling it, which could be for any reason, right? You know, slept badly or, you know, and, and, and still take action that day because you have not made the action dependent on the specific, uh, mindset. And so I actually think it can really hold people back. Finally, I don't know if you want to go into this, but there is a sort of really weird and quite unpleasant um, moral implication sometimes from some proponents of that kind of way of thinking, which is that, you know, if you are poor, that must be your fault. If you have a terminal illness, that must be your fault. You know, you're responsible for your reality and it's always only your individual responsibility for anything that goes wrong. And I think that that is a very unhealthy way to organize a society, you know, that we have no compassion for people in those situations. We have no social structural <laughs> uh, ways of, of, of helping or a social safety net and things like that. That's just a kind of, you know, I, I think that's a very sort of unhelpfully individualistic way of, uh, of, of thinking about human flourishing. I mean, it's a, it's a billion dollar dollar industry, you know, and these, uh, these people that are, you know, kind of, selling us this idea that we can simply be rich which which they're actually becoming rich by selling us this idea right exactly. or i i don't know i i really i just it's it, it it's frustrating and it it 
I mean, I, I really just want to, you know, grab someone and just kind of say, no, you know, it takes hard work and, you know, deliberate practice and, and, and science. Yeah, right, right. And also, I was going to say, it's also a question of looking at who's giving you advice, right? Because I mean, you know, I suppose what I do is in some sense give advice. I've got to confess that. But um, I hope that I've spent enough time talking to the people whose ideas I'm trying to communicate and studying the research that I'm trying to communicate. Quite often you will read about self-help gurus, I don't need to name any names, you know, who, whose life story goes like this. They hit rock bottom very early in their lives. They, they, um, they consider themselves to be terrible losers in their late teens or something like that, or they struggle with alcohol or some, what, some, something like that, which is, you know, no shame in, in facing up to things that go wrong in life like that at all. But then they decide is an immediate response. The way to deal with the situation they're in is to like become a self-help guru and start advising other people. So mm-hmm. I'm always on the lookout for, uh, you know, I want to read self-help books by, by 90 year old guys, you know, rather than, uh, than that, because I, um, because, you know, I want to know that the, the advice that I'm hearing has, has been put to the practice that it's not actually just being used in the same way that the people around the secret might be using the secret to make the money that they say you can get by following the secret, uh, to do that same kind of pull that same kind of trick, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, do, I I get it. I mean, Oliver, this this conversation has flown by, man. I I, do, I can't believe how much we covered, and and it was just a just a fun conversation actually for me, and it was very cathartic because it was just in your work, and I, I think it's it's good to examine your all angles and kind of just step back from whatever you may be in, involved in and look at what you're doing and yeah. that self-actualization that self-awareness i mean how can it how can that be you know a negative negative thing right and i'm totally uh, agreeing with you i think that you know there's no shame in pointing out like why am i interested in writing about topics like this why do you do this podcast why do people listen to this podcast like people who are interested in this stuff they're not the people, and there's no shame in this at all, they're not the people who started out thinking like, well, my life's completely fine, I've got no problems, and I'll just keep going along with no, no change. Like, those people never get interested in, in this kind of stuff. It comes partly from negative emotions and pain and issues that you have, Definitely. problems you want to surmount. And like, it's totally fine to be a person who has problems as long as you sort of take a conscious attitude towards them and, and, and try to, um, you know, be a decent and compassionate person towards other people's problems like and this idea that is in parts of self-help culture that you just have to start by pretending that everything's perfect just uh, yeah well as you can tell it, it, it gets me exercise <laughs> through your professional career you've actually you've you've met a lot of different celebrities from you know al gore to 50 cent um <laughs> yeah. first of all how how did that that go about i mean how did you get get to the point where you're meeting these people and then then i mean what did you what did you gain from that like how did how did you how did that affect you well i did that and uh, to the extent that i still do it uh, uh, as an interviewer and a feature writer for the guardian so you know often it'll be like we have an opportunity to interview this person and uh, some of the time it'll be me who's chosen to uh, go do it or i'll someone will i'll make a sort of uh, vigorous campaign for it to be me and to try to persuade my editor as, as I did with um, Bill Clinton for example I was like you know um, I, I want that opportunity um, it's uh, it's been great it's been a really sort of privileged thing and um, I think that one of the most interesting things that, that one can do in those situations is to try you know to ask one question that these people haven't heard a million times before Mm. and when you do manage that which is not all the time but you do get a sort of connection and I think you know this sounds like a cliche but one of the things you realize is that people in those very high profile situations struggle with a lot of the same things that all of us struggle with some people armchair psychologists might say they struggle with them more and that's why they become uh, celebrities because they like have a craving for uh, for uh, a sort of attention that um that uh, the rest of us don't so you know they they're not kind of paragons of perfection but that's kind of great to realize that and to to know that they are um flawed and struggle with the same kinds of of, of challenges and um, 
you know, and occasionally I got like genuinely good bits of productivity advice from them, like uh, Jerry Seinfeld, for example, who, who, who gave me this great idea of thinking about creative work as a, 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 a in the, using the metaphor of athletics, you know, that you're, it's, you're not an artist so much as you're an athlete. Uh, this involves, you know, small amounts of progressive training on a daily basis, which is how he approaches uh, his comedy. Still goes to stand-up clubs in New Jersey where he doesn't need to go <laughs> at all for the, yeah. for the money or for the fame, but just, uh, you know, it's like going to the weights room or uh, going to the treadmill. And um, that was very powerful. But mainly it's just this idea of, like, oh, you know, okay. They kind of, celebrities, they're just like us, like it says in uh, Us Weekly magazine. <laughs> I mean, and that's, you know, and, you know, you're, as the way you spoke about kind of Jerry Seinfeld, you, you can... You know, you can really feel the difference of someone who is kind of bullshitting you. And I mean, I think we've crossed the paradigm of I, th I feel like our bullshit detectors are just at maximum. Like we we're 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 getting better at just knowing or at least I mean, maybe that's my per perception. It could be completely off base. I mean, there may be some people who just have no idea. But, you know, I, I, w I would like to think that the paradigm is shifting and that when someone is bullshitting us sooner or later, we eventually figure that out. We find that out, you know, either their their actions don't line up to, you know, their words or, you know, some, something is going on that re reveals who they truly are. In that same kind of regard, there are people who that, you know, we can take away from and that that do walk, talk and and kind of follow up with what they're saying and doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's always the same thing, you know, be willing to call bullshit, but but also be open to the idea that that there's value there. And the same applies, I think, to the world of self-help, right? I mean, don't don't fall for useless pseudoscientific rubbish. But on the other hand, and this has been if anything, if anything more of a challenge for me, like things like keeping a gratitude diary, which is kind of an embarrassing thing in the social circles I come from, to be like, oh yeah, I keep a gratitude diary. It's like a gratitude journal. But like it works. It's worth doing. The science is there. And so being willing to take that kind of advice, even when it feels kind of embarrassing, is just as important as being willing to call people out, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Oliver, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, man. Where can people find your work? Is it, is it just oliverbrookman.com? Uh, that is uh, my website. Um, you can put my name into the search box at theguardian.com for uh, a lot of the stuff I've done there. And I'm Oliver Berkman on Twitter. And the book, as you said, is The Antidote. Awesome. Guys, you have been listening to The Human Experience. My name is Xavier Katana. The book is called The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. Go pick up a copy. It's a fascinating read. We are going to get out of here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening.